0: Tomorrow morning we're going to be studying Nahum. Like I said, uh, this series is giving us a chance to look at a part of our Bibles that we may not have looked at much, to become familiar with a part of God's Word that we may not know. Nahum was definitely one of those parts of God's Word for me. I don't think two weeks ago I could have told you what was in Nahum. But I think after this morning, any one of you will be able to explain this book to uh someone else and understand it yourself. What I uh, want to do this morning is to work through the whole book. I know that's pretty ambitious. I'm planning on reading the whole book at some point. Um, it's three chapters. They're not real long chapters, but that may be a little too ambitious. We'll see how far we get. Um, prophecy in Scripture is very much like poetry. It uses heavily symbolic language. And uh, to really understand what's going on, it's helpful to understand the symbols. Uh, like other types of poetry, it, it the, the, the goal is not just to give you the facts about a historic event. Uh, what they, what the, the prophet does in using that figurative and that beautiful language is gives you a feeling. For what's happening. You not only understand it, you you almost experience it as you read it. With a lot of of poetry, it ruins it to explain it. But I think when we don't really know what a lot of the symbols are, it helps us to understand the symbols. So one of the things that we're going to try to do is I'm going to try to fill in just some of the, the more obscure symbols so that hopefully, rather than detract from it, it'll bring the feelings out. So as we go through, don't let this be just an academic exercise. let it be an emotional one as well. As I said we're going to work through and try to understand the symbols, try to understand what's going on. but then we're going to need to step back and say, why is this here? Why did God want this in our Bibles? What does he want to, to teach us? What does he want to teach us about himself and about ourselves? So when we get through we're going to stop back up and, and say what does this book have to tell us today? The book of Nahum is a book of judgment. You know, the first time I read it, I thought, "My goodness, uh, you know, there's, this is three chapters uh, 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 of bummer." He uh, he's just wasting these people. He walks up with an oozy and just hoses them down. You know, where's the grace? Where's the salvation? But I think as we go through, we'll see that this is the uh, the, the necessary counterpoint, the backdrop to grace. One of the problems with uh, popular theology in our day is that it's lost the picture, the true picture of God as a God who is holy, a God who is righteous and just, a God who will judge evil. You see, we dispense a kind of a cheap grace. We paint God as this kindly old forgetful grandfather who uh, you know, clucks his tongue at evil and chuckles to himself and says, "There, there, play nicer, children." We we've lost the true picture of a God who is powerful, who who is angry at sin, who will not tolerate sin. See, and, and in, in this context, this God who views evil as a Minor indiscretion, sin as a as a faux pas that he overlooks, forgiveness really loses its meaning. After all, you know what do we really have to be forgiven of? And repentance uh, is no longer falling on our knees before him and seeking mercy. It, it, it's throwing our arm around his shoulder and asking him if he has a personal problem that makes him uncomfortable with our lifestyle. See, repentance is no longer seeking uh, seeking his mercy. It's an adjustment to our lifestyle, to improve the quality of our lives. And books like this bring us back to reality. They correct our thinking so we see God more clearly and we can respond to him more appropriately. So turn uh, to the end of your Old Testaments. That's where they've hidden the minor prophets, right before the New Testament. And right in the middle of the minor prophets is uh, Nahum. It's right after Uh, Jonah and uh, Micah right before Habakkuk, Zephaniah. If you're using a study Bible, it's page 1382. I can see a lot of you looked up in advance. You didn't want to be caught looking now because everybody's turning right to it. (laughs) That was wise. That was wise. Okay, let's start with verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Okay, right off we're told this was written by Nahum about Nineveh. Now, unlike Joel, where we really didn't know when he wrote exactly, we have a real good idea when Nahum wrote. It was about 650 B.C. We're also told that he was an Elkoshite. simply means he was from a village or a town called Elko or Elkosh. Now, there are four possibilities of where this village was. One is in what's now northern Iraq, very close to the ruins of Nineveh. The locals there claim that's where Nahum was buried. Second option was in Galilee, uh, in in Israel. Capernaum literally means village of Nahum. And there's a small town outside of Capernaum where the locals claim that Nahum lived. Third option is a uh, town called Elko Bet-Gabre. It's in uh, Judah, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. That's where most scholars believe that uh, Nahum was actually from. My own scholarship has led me to suggest that it was from a town in Nevada, about 60 miles from the Utah border on Highway 80. But you can take that for what it's worth. Nahum's ma- name means uh, comfort or consolation. And at first reading this book, it's hard to find much comfort or consolation. But I think, again, as we go through, we'll see that this was full of comfort for God's people. Now, let me tell you a little about Nineveh. Nineveh was a very ancient city. Uh, In Genesis 10, we're told that it was originally founded by a great-grandson of Noah, a guy by the name of Nimrod, who was the most powerful man of his day. By the time of Abraham, Nineveh was competing with Ur and Babylon and and a couple other cities for dominance of the area. But by the time of Nahum, uh, Nineveh had been the undisputed ruler of the world for a long time. Nineveh was the capital of a civilization known as Assyria. And for 600 years prior to this, uh, three times as long as the United States has even been a country... No one had ever defeated the Syrian armies. No one had ever been able to resist them. They had conquered the world all the way from, uh, from what's now Iran, all the way from Pakistan to Turkey, down to, the, uh, to all of Egypt in North Africa. The entire known world was ruled by them, except for one little, tiny, insignificant, nothing country called Judah. It's interesting, if you look at a map of the Assyrian Empire at its height, the entire region of the Middle East and Asia Minor is shaded in except for this one little circle, a little tiny circle right on the edge of the empire. It was Judah. See, Judah had never been captured, never been uh, overrun, never been taken. The northern ten tribes of Israel were destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., completely wiped out. That's why they disappear from history. But Judah had never been conquered. Now, there are two more uh, historic background events I want to tell you about before we get back into the text. The first is that Nineveh is the city that Jonah went to. If you remember the story of Jonah, God told him to go to Nineveh, tell him that he was about to judge them, tell him he was about to destroy them problem was that Jonah hated Ninevites. He hated Assyrians. They were the bullies of the block. This was about 130 years before Nahum wrote. The the Assyrian Empire hadn't reached its height yet, but they already controlled all of Iran, all of Iraq, and they were already starting their campaigns into Palestine. Everyone knew of them. Everyone was terrified of them. And Jonah hated them. He wasn't afraid that if he went there... Something bad would happen to him. He was afraid that if he went there, they would listen and repent, and God wouldn't destroy them. He hated them. He wanted to see them get toasted. So he got on a ship headed for Spain, trying to get out of Assyria's neighborhood. But God brought him back by way of a fish. He ended up going to Nineveh, and sure enough, just like he feared, the Ninevites repented. And God did not destroy them. In fact, for a very brief period of their time, uh, of their history... They not only the Nineveh not only recognized the true God, but they worshipped him for a very brief time. About uh, sixty years after that is when they came through, wiped out the northern ten tribes at seven twenty two B C. And then another thirty years after that, they came back, the the Ninevites, the Assyrians, to conquer Judah. They surrounded Jerusalem. They sent some emissaries into the city. Uh, to talk to King Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah at the time. And these emissaries came and they said, Listen, you better give up quickly. Nobody's going to help you. The sooner, the better for you. And then these emissaries turned and started shouting out to the people in Hebrew, Don't believe Hezekiah when he tells you to trust God. Your God can't save you. Nobody else's God has saved them. And the people in the city started to panic. And then Isaiah came with a word from the Lord. Isaiah said, this is what God says. says, don't worry about these guys. I'll take care of these people who ridicule the living God. I'm going to send them back to Nineveh, and I'm going to take care of this king who has insulted me. Next morning, Sennacherib, who was the king of the Assyrians, woke up, found 185,000 of his men had died in their sleep. So he broke camp and headed back to Nineveh. When he got there, two of his sons had planned a coup. He went into his temple of Nishroch to find out what went wrong. And when he was in the temple worshiping, his sons murdered him. Nineveh got another very clear message that God is God. It was unmistakable. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. And that's also why Judah was never conquered. Because God defended them. Now, here we are. The book of Nahum written about 30 years after that event. And uh, Nahum is going to be telling what uh, God plans to do with Nineveh. Let's get back into it, starting with verse 2. Verses 2 through 11 really are the theme of the book. But uh, we'll inch our way through. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. Now it's hard for us to think of God as a jealous person. Because so often jealousy in humans is such a, a petty um, selfish emotion. It kind of comes out of our insecurities, out of our distrust, and is so often. An unhealthy desire to control another person. You see, for God, jealousy is a righteous attitude. It is right for Him to demand loyalty, to demand trust from humans. Because He created us for that very purpose. And for us to give loyalty to anyone or anything above God leads us to act in ways that are destructive and damaging. Put us against God. Not just away from God, but against God. For God not to be jealous would be for God to be unloving. For Him to just write us off and not care. To, to not care that we've chosen a, a life, a path, that's not only going to destroy us, but cause us to be destructive of, of the people around us. See, God's jealousy is right. And it's righteous. God is the only one who is truly good and what he requires of us in our loyalty to him is what will make us constructive and healthy and truly good ourselves. Now God's jealousy here is not just out of his protection for his people, Israel. I think his jealousy here is also for the Ninevites. You see, he reached out over and over to them through Jonah, through Isaiah, through others. And over and over he he showed them that he was the true God and trusting him was their true hope. But over and over again they turned away from him. As a result they became terribly wicked. They not only turned away from themselves, they forced uh, their idolatry on all of civilization. You see, God is incredibly patient with them. But there comes a time when justice must come, comes a time when they have to be called to account for the choices that they have made. And that's what verse 3 uh, starts with. It says, The Lord is slow to anger, but he is great in power, and the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. See, the Lord is slow to anger, he has been incredibly Patient with these with the Ninevites, the Assyrians, but that doesn't mean he isn't paying attention. That doesn't mean he's just been letting things slide. He's been giving them every opportunity to to turn, to come to him. But eventually, time runs out. Eventually, that patience has to come to an end. Justice has to prevail. And when that time comes for justice, God is the one with the power to set things right. It says, he's in the uh, whirlwind and in the storm, you know, a hurricane and a tornado and the incredible power of a hurricane. Just a taste, a, 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 a glimpse of God's power. And it goes on, the next several verses go on to describe God's power in the most graphic terms that these people could imagine. Verse 4, he rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon were, were, were known for being the most lush and productive and fruitful parts of the world. He says he can dry them up like that. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. In verse 7, we have a brief counterpoint to the anger, to the wrath of God. The Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust Him. See, that's God's desire. His longing is for people to trust Him, to turn to Him, to come to Him. He is good, and what He wants for people is good. That's why He's given us His Word, so that we can see Him. We can see that He's good, we can see that He's loving. We can see that he's generous and kind. As a result of that, we can turn to him, and come to him, trust him, even when things get confusing, even when things get scary. See, so that's what faith is all about. Last week, uh, Nick taught on Habakkuk, and in, in Habakkuk, God said, "The righteous will live by faith." See, faith is is trusting God, trusting that He is good, trusting that he's powerful, being able to say to God, God, I don't understand what's going on. This is confusing me. This is frightening me. But I trust you. I trust that you're good. I trust that you're wise. I trust that you're powerful. I trust you, God. You're God and I will let you be God. When we come to that conclusion, we find life, spiritual life. We find peace. We find comfort find consolation. So it doesn't mean all the, the difficulties of life, all the problems, all the hurts, all the loss and sorrow and suffering goes away, but it does mean that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guards our hearts and minds. See, that, in spite of, of what it may seem to us, in spite of how it may feel, that is the only path to life. But when people act faithlessly, when they trust their own understanding, when they uh, uh, trust their own ability to, to take care of themselves, to handle circumstances, they begin to act in ways that put themselves in opposition to God. We'll come back to this, but the point that God's making right here is when you put yourself in that position, you lose. Verse 8. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. You see, Nineveh put themselves in that position of opposition to God, and they will lose. In fact, they will be completely wiped out. The, the, the destruction of Nineveh that, that Nahum goes on to describe here is somewhat unique in history. Uh, the, the Assyrian civilization simply ceased to exist after this fall of Nineveh. Right? You know, every other civilization, the, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Greeks, the, the Romans, even though they were eventually overthrown and their civilization was destroyed, their civilization continued to have an effect, continued to be seen for centuries. Assyria simply ceased to exist in history. Uh, I, 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 uh, uh, Civilization that had existed for 2,000 years disappeared. In fact, so much so that uh, up till the middle 1800s, a lot of scholars and archaeologists who didn't believe the Bible thought that Nineveh and the greatness of the Assyrian uh, civilization was a fiction that the, the Bible writers made up because they couldn't find any archaeological evidence of it wasn't until 1845 when a, a British archaeologist by the name of Laird discovered the ruins of Nineveh and they started to excavate this huge city and find all of these records that the the reality of this mighty this incredible civilization was confirmed but over and over through the book of name this absolute complete destruction is warned verse 9 Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. And trouble will not come a second time. It's only going to take one time. It's going to be over with. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. A lot of the soldiers were drunk when they were actually overrun. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, has come forth one who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This is what the Lord says... Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. You know, this little insignificant, little tiny country, Judah, this little dot on the edge of the Assyrian Empire was what God was concerned about. And this is incomprehensible to the Assyrians. I mean, this is a a country hardly worth worrying about. And yet, that's what God cared about. In fact, the the, the primary reason God judged Nineveh was because of how they treated his people. They had oppressed his people. They had harmed his people. You know, what what a comfort, what an encouragement for all those who belong to God. We're important to him. Verse 13, Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. And it's over. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temples of your God. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace, Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Again, there's that counterpoint of God taking care of those who trust Him. See, that's really the theme of this whole book. That's really the contrast over and over. That those who oppose God, no matter how big, no matter how powerful, no matter how wealthy and influential and significant, They won't stand. Those who trust God, no matter how small, no matter how weak, no matter how alone, no matter how insignificant in the world's eyes, they will stand because God will take care of them. Chapter 2 goes on to describe the actual invasion. And uh, we have discovered since uh, Laird discovered the the, the, invasion Ruins of Nineveh, there have been a lot of accounts discovered about the actual plundering of Assyria, of, the, of Nineveh. And so there are a lot of details that we can bring into this just to help understand what's going on. Let me, let me start through it again. We'll get as far as we get. Verse 1, An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The attacker was the Medes and the Scythians and the Babylonians. These three subjugated people revolted and formed an army that went to attack Nineveh. But the Ninevites weren't afraid at all. They figured they'd defeat this little army. There was no problem to them. They didn't realize that it was really God who opposed them. Verse 2, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. The shields of his soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. We know that the uh, uniforms of the Medes were red. They painted their shields red. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, making ba- or rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches as they dart about like lightning. We've got uh, other accounts of other battles where the uh, the metal on the rims of the chariot wheels and on the hubs catches the sun as it's coming in the uh, on, in the dawn in the early morning. And it makes it look like these torches are coming up toward the uh, city, attacking the city. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. See, um, Nineveh was protected by two huge rivers. The One was the Tigris River, huge river was on the side of Nineveh. The other was the Kosar River, which was channeled through the city to provide water, even under siege. It, it, there, were, there, were, there were gates under the wall so the river could come in. The, the Tigris River, parts of that were channeled around the city, making a huge moat. And the wall inside the moat was up to 60 feet tall. See, the, the Ninevites weren't afraid at all. No one had ever successfully attacked Nineveh. It had done them any damage. They, uh, they figured they were completely secure inside that city. But the Roman historian, uh, Diodorus Seculus, I had to work on his name before I got here, Diodorus Seculus, he uh, writes that a heavy rain in the mountains above Nineveh caused the rivers to flood. And when the rivers flooded, they washed away parts of the wall of Nineveh. One section was apparently almost 12,000 feet of wall, just gone. As soon as the wall fell down, the attackers rushed in. The Ninevites were completely unprepared. They were overrun, destroyed. You see, God defeated them with a simple flood at just the right time. Verse 7, it is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all of its treasures. Some of the Babylonian records say that in the in the palace alone, there were 150 beds of solid gold, 100 tables made of solid gold. Uh, the, the, the records say that they could not inventory all of the gold and silver and ivory. There was too much of it. For, for almost a 1,000 years, Assyria had brought the wealth of the entire world back to Nineveh constantly. Every time they conquered a new people, bringing the wealth back, the city was, was paved in gold. It was incredible. But all of that... Is plundered. All of it's gone. Verse 10. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies uh, tremble, every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den? The lion was the symbol of Assyria. The, 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 the Syrian kings referred to themselves as lions. That's why God uses this taunt. He says, Where now is the lion's den? The place where they fed their young. Where the lion and lioness went and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. See, the Assyrians were known for their cruelty. In the records they found in the city of Nineveh, the the Assyrian kings bragged of how many captives they slaughtered. One uh, slaughtered 3,000 at one time. They, they would torture them. Uh, they would skin their captives alive and hang the skins on the city wall. They would impale them on stakes and let them die slowly. They'd cut their arms and legs off and leave them alive. I read about ten of these accounts. One uh, king actually bragged that he burned 300 small children alive. I'll, I'll spare you the more detail But they used these to create terror. But as a result, everyone in the world hated them. They had plundered every civilization they had ever come up against. But God says, now you will be plundered. The next verses give us a vivid, terse, kind of poetic account of, of that plundering, of that attack. The crack of the whips, the clatter of wheels, the galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and people by her witchcraft. Nineveh is being pictured as a a harlot and as a, a sorceress who had been unfaithful to God, God who had reached out to her She turns on him, and she is haughty and proud, so he humiliates her. Verse 5, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes? Let me tell you about Thebes. Thebes was the capital of Egypt. Uh, It's uh, one of the the greatest cities ever built. Luxor and uh, Karnak were the temples of Thebes. It was built about 400 miles up the Nile from where Cairo is now. And it was protected by the Nile in almost exactly the same way that the Tigris protected Nineveh. It was invincible, or so they thought. But only about 15 years before Nahum wrote this, in 663 B.C., the Assyrians themselves conquered Thebes and destroyed it, plundered it. So this image of what they had done to Thebes, which was supposedly unconquerable, is going to be vivid in their minds. Naam says, or God says, "...are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile, with water around her? The river was her defense, the water her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies." Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at the end of every street. Lots were cast for her nobles, and her great men were put in chains. You, too, will become drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they're shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. You're going to be easy pickings. Look at your troops. They are all women. little sexism here. But uh, in those days when a battle was fought by the strength of the arm, rather than the sophistication of of the technology, women were not warriors. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed their bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your defenses. He's saying, get ready all you want. It's not going to do you any good. Work the clay, tread the mortar, repair the brickwork. There the fire will devour you, the sword will cut you down, and like grasshoppers consume you. Multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more than the stars of the sky, but like locusts they strip the land and fly away. See, Nineveh was the commercial center of the world. They controlled all of the commerce of the world. They, their merchants were powerful and wealthy. Their economy was stable. Uh, they had nothing to worry about. They were completely secure in the power of this economy. The, the people of Nineveh were, were incredibly wealthy by the world's standards. They had plundered and, and, and taken the wealth of every other nation, every other civilization... But when the walls come down, their merchants scatter. They take the money and run and try to get away with it. In verse 17, your guards are like locusts, your officials like swarms of locusts. They settle on the walls on a cold day. But when the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. You see, the guards, the soldiers, the bureaucrats who ran this incredible empire, this huge civilization... They were a a great, skilled, professional force that the people could rely on. But when the walls came down, their professionalism went out the window and they ran for their lives. O king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? See, Nineveh has fallen and no one is sad. I realize when, when Nahum wrote this, Nineveh was at its height we look back and we say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. We can look at the records and, 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 and piece together exactly what God said was going to happen is what happened, down to the details of the, of the uniforms of the soldiers that attacked. But from the point of the people who were hearing this for the first time, this is impossible. Uh, Assyria had been a civilization for 2,000 years. It's not going to get destroyed. Nineveh was impregnable. There's no way anything bad was going to happen. To Nineveh? Why should they believe this? And why should God's people believe this? Uh, Nineveh seemed invincible. And you know, how is God going to take care of a real life problem like this? I mean, religion is fine. But when it comes down to it, business is done the way the Ninevites say it's done, and that's that. But on a specific day of the week, on a specific date, in a specific month, in the year 612 BC, Nineveh fell. Ceased to exist from history. See, God is slow to anger, but he is powerful and he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Okay, what's the point of this for us today? Well, there's a lot of applications that, that come to my mind. Well, the first one uh, has to do with a with a movie I saw uh, a long time ago. I can't even remember who the people were in. I just can remember this line: the, uh, the 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 star of the movie walks into this bar, and here's one of those huge, you know, ex football player type actors. And it was Bubba Smith or Ben Davidson or one of those type of guys. But anyway, uh, he walks up to to this huge mountain of a man, and he says, "If a fight starts," I'm on your side. And I think one of the points has got to be, if a fight breaks out, you want to be on God's side. Another uh, uh, idea that's definitely here is that God is sovereign over all the nations. The political situation in our world, even today, is not beyond His control. And we've got absolutely nothing to fear, no matter what we see happening. No matter who seems to be winning, God wins. I saw a bumper sticker the other day. It said, I read the Bible. I know who wins. And that's right. We know God wins. That's not to make us complacent when it comes to political things, but it should remove any fear. The story also confirms the old adage that power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You see, the Assyrians had absolute power. They did whatever they wanted. No one could stop them. They abused their power, selfishly destroying people. But any nation, any people that oppresses others will fall. See, in history, God uses evil against evil to keep it in check. The, uh, the Scythians and the Medes and the Babylonians were no more righteous than the Assyrians. God just used them to stop the unrighteousness of the Assyrians. As they got more power, they acted corruptly, and God had to destroy them eventually as well. That's the way God uses evil within history to keep it in check, to keep it from being uh, able to destroy everything. Another point that's obvious in this book is that God takes care of his own. that We are very significant. We are very important to him. See, throughout history, Christians have always been a minority and almost always been a persecuted minority. Most civilizations have viewed true believers as an irritation, an insignificant irritation that needs to just be eradicated. But over and over throughout history, kingdoms, empires, nations are smashed. But God's kingdom keeps going continues on. You see, I'm convinced that uh, in spite of what the economists and the politicians come up with in their assessments, uh, and these assessments may be valid, the real reason the Soviet Empire fell, I'm convinced, is because of how they persecuted believers in that nation. You know, we Christians often feel insignificant, small, powerless and from the world's point of view we are but just like that little tiny insignificant nation of Judah mattered to God you matter to God and he'll take care of you but I think the uh, the Walter Kaiser has identified the the real meaning of man he writes this he says the effect of These prophetic words were to have on the people of God is not what is commonly assumed. They were to reaffirm that God is in control of the universe, that might does not make right, and that God is able to make all things right. People who violate divine morality through violence, oppression, greed for land or power or possessions, and any acts of cruelty against any person, since all are made in the image of God, have to answer directly and ultimately to God. It is another affirmation that since God created all persons in his image, a person cannot treat others inhumanely and hope to escape God's punishment. See, we can look at this, Saul, and say, yes, we know that Syria deserved to be judged. Nineveh deserved their judgment. They had abused their power. They had acted cruelly and faithlessly and selfishly. I think there's a far more personal application as well. See, every one of us has a certain degree of power, whether it's over the people we manage at work or even the people we do business with over the salesman who needs our business or whether it's over our wives or our husbands or our children or just other people in social situations. We all have a certain degree of power. When we act faithlessly relying on our own understanding, relying on our own ability to handle the circumstances of life and take care of ourselves. We begin to act in ways that put ourselves at odds with God. And what flows out of that are little acts of cruelty, little acts of selfishness, little acts of oppression that harm the people around us. You see, those little acts aren't little. Of God. We may feel like we're okay, like He's going to overlook it all, like we're we're sliding sliding under the wire. Like we get away with it, but we won't. Much of our attempts at financial security or to to gain positions of influence and power are veiled attempts to insulate ourselves, to, to, to feel like we can act independently of God. But we can't. If the power and the wealth of Nineveh didn't insulate them, our attempts aren't going to protect us. The only protection that we have is righteousness, a right standing with God. You see, over and over, God reached out to the Ninevites through through Jonah, through uh, Isaiah, through Nahum, through others, reaching out to them. Giving them the opportunity to turn, to come to Him. But eventually, time ran out. And you may be coming here week after week to hear God's Word taught. Every one of those is an opportunity to turn to Him, to come to Him in trust. See, that's what He longs for. That's what He desires. He's being patient. He's giving you time. Second Peter 2 says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, He's made a way for you to escape His anger, His vengeance, His judgment. That way is through repentance, through turning to Him and accepting the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. See, that, that is, for any of us, that is our hope. Nahum said, the Lord is slow to anger, but the Lord is powerful and He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. See, that punishment was taken by Jesus on the cross. And if you will turn to Him, if you will trust Him, His death covers your sins, removes your guilt. Trusting Him, He can free you from your your oppressive, exploitive behaviors. That's the offer that God's making and He longs for you to accept it. But if you haven't, and if you don't, Time will eventually run out. I was talking to a friend of mine just Thursday. She told me that her friend died Wednesday night without any warning, without uh, any uh, apparent reason. Her body just quit. Time had run out. See, God is not to be trifled with. He's not playing games with us but He is honestly opening His heart. He's appealing to us. He wants us to see that He is good and loving and to come to Him trusting Him. That's His heart's desire. He is appealing to every one of us. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray for those here who have not yet come to you trusting you and receive forgiveness. I pray that they would read the words that you've given us in Naan and see that you are a powerful God, that you are very serious, that they would fall to their knees and seek your mercy and discover how good you are How generous you are. How much you delight in loving us. Lord, uh, free them from their confusion. Free them from the things that hold them back. From experiencing the life that's found in you. Or draw them to yourself. Pray for those of us who've already come to you that you would use this book to help us face our little acts of cruelty, our little acts of oppression, whether it's in the home or other contexts, that we would realize that you don't tolerate this, that, that you want to free us. You would cause us to repent, cause us to, to again take you seriously and take our sins seriously and trust you and discover that you are good. That you delight to care for those who trust you. That you are our refuge. Lord, uh, we want to uh, to come to you as you really are. We know that you are our Father. You are Abba. And we can approach you. and Know that, that, that you are gentle and understanding. But we also recognize that you are the God of the universe, and that you do deserve our respect, and that you are very serious in your desire to free us from sin so that we can be good like you, constructive and healthy and beautiful. So, Lord, use your words to draw our hearts to you as you truly are. We pray in your name. Amen.